pitching in on encampments. This week, the city is backtracking on its encampment strategy, starting to investigate a plan to make property tax more progressive, and worrying that a huge amount of affordable housing might disappear. Plus, the Valley Line LRT is now open. Just kidding. Except, maybe we're not. We're recording this two days early, and it could be true. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 184, now recorded proudly in the city of Vancouver, Edmonton. (laughs) It has been raining nonstop for the past three weeks. Uh, It could be worse. The garden's loving all the rain, I have to say. 13 people who might not be loving this are the city councillors and the mayor who voted against helicopter mosquito spraying and are now dealing with a population of mosquitoes that are blooming out the wazoo. Mosquitoes are everywhere. So sorry, council. On to the rapid fire segment. Brad Rutherford, the UCP MLA for Leduc Beaumont, received a promotion this week from MLA to Minister Without Portfolio. The MLA, who was previously notable for, well, nothing, got a promotion commensurate with his past experience of, again, nothing. However, in keeping with Jason Kenney's history of paying something for nothing, like with Keystone XL pipelines or the Superlab cancellation, taxpayers will be on the hook for an extra $27,000 a year for Rutherford's nothing promotion. Edmonton taxi companies are asking city council to approve an increase to the fares they can charge, citing rising fuel and operational costs as a couple of reasons forcing this request. Said the president of the Edmonton Taxi Association, quote, Our members have been struggling with some inflationary pressures for years now, but the reallocation of the Edmonton police has been the nail in our coffin. Before, drivers would only spend about 15 minutes, but now, with slower police response times, drivers have to wait three or four hours after hitting a cyclist when the taxi was driving in the bike lane. It's absurd. Albertans are lining up and camping outside Canada Place as early as 1.30 a.m. in order to get a passport. However, some have reached the front of the line and decided they don't need it anymore. Steve, an Edmonton resident who thought he wanted to go to Italy, realized after hour seven in his tent on 97th Street, watching the sun rise over the river valley and illuminating the red bricks, that the real vacation was the friends he made in line along the way. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the well-endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It is hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Check out episode 125, which scratches the surface of Edmonton's history with racism. You can find The Well-Endowed Podcast wherever podcasts are sold, or find out more at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Mac, let's start off this episode with an update on everything we've been talking about for the past couple of months. The police commission, safety updates. Nothing huge happened this week, but there was a whole smattering of updates that all lend additional context to our fight for police accountability. Yeah, the first thing that's kind of notable, I suppose, is that on June 20th, Mayor Emerjit so he met with several people from the province, Premier Jason Kenney, Justice Minister Tyler Shandro, and Labor and Immigration Minister Casey Madhu to discuss the public safety plan that, of course, Edmonton was required to submit as of June 9th. They met, they all described the meeting as productive. A response to the plan from Alberta's Director of Law Enforcement was apparently provided to the city of Edmonton, to the mayor at the meeting. But the province said, quote, it will not be released at this time. 
as both parties have committed to working together to refine and improve the plan in the near term, end quote. So they asked us for this plan, Troy. We delivered the plan, a really good looking plan, then met with them to talk about it and what they thought. And that's now private. It's kind of strange, no? Well, the strange if you're talking about a government that's operating in good faith and actually focused on the safety of the citizens of Edmonton rather than politicking at Edmonton's expense. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's strange in that <laughs> narrow context. That's not the context we live in, though. No. This plan was a summary of things that we're already doing. One new thing, I suppose, if you want to stretch it a little bit in that plan, was this Healthy Streets Operation Center in Chinatown. This is one of the things that that plan talked about. It's supposed to be, you know, a multi-agency collaboration facility. There's already something up and running, but the city said it was only funded for a few months. And so one of the other things that happened this week was a motion from Councillor Tim Cartmel, who had given notice of motion uh, about this previously. His motion was going to be that the city give $5 million to the Edmonton Police Commission to fund this new Healthy Streets Operation Center and to make sure that it's got all of the resources it needs to allow these teams to respond in a timely and effective manner. Remember, this motion was made immediately after council froze the police budget, after much debate about what is and isn't a freeze. So I think it is important to remember the context by which this $5 million was requested. I guess the good news, Troy, this week is that the motion did pass. Council did unanimously approve the motion from Councilor Carmel, but it no longer talked about $5 million. Now the uh, motion basically was that they work with the Edmonton Police Commission to develop a business plan to provide funding and whatever resources are needed to allow this operation center to continue. So unanimously passed, but $5 million taken out. And I got to say, it was a little bout of irony that immediately after a meeting where council was unanimous, mostly in its decision to pursue a funding formula, I found it very ironic that immediately after there was a motion from a counselor ostensibly proposing a service package of $5 million <laughs> for a particular safety initiative, uh, that wasn't lost on me. Uh, and I'm sure some listeners picked up on that. Yeah, I love this part in the Global Edmonton story about this. They said, city administration is now tasked with determining how much such a center would cost to run. So that $5 million was really pulled out of thin air. I'm pretty sure, Troy, we've heard Councillor Cartmel talk about the importance of having good information in the past. This police commission has direction to generate a business plan for this. The police commission, of course, is shrinking a little bit because there are some upcoming vacancies that city council is looking to fill. So, Mac, the question on everyone's mind, when are you applying to be a police commissioner? <laughs> Well, my duty as a journalist would preclude me from applying to the police commission, so that's not going to be happening. The police commission currently has 10 members. It previously uh, had a maximum of 11, and earlier this year in March, council approved an amendment to the bylaw to allow it to expand to 12. So that's why there are two open spots on the police commission, and they announced this week in a news release that they are recruiting they even did an audio file, I'm not going to call it a podcast, with Chair John McDougall and other police commissioner Jody Callahue Stonehouse. I found it very interesting when this came out because I didn't connect that council had added the additional seat and I had thought we were getting notice that, for example, Callahue Stonehouse might be resigning from the police commission. She, mm -hmm. of course, is running to be an MLA for the Alberta NDP. I would have expected a resignation would be 
required to run, but no news of that yet. This is just filling vacancies on the police commission. Yes, it's possible there will be additional vacancies in the future, but for now it's the one existing vacancy plus this new position that council seems to think will make an impact in providing the accountability we all expect from the police commission. If you are able to speculate, what do you think a pick for this police commission will look like? You could have picks like Tom Engel, uh, the the lawyer um, and known critic of the police. You know, there's actually a wide selection of known critics of the police from the uh, EPA complaint against Councillor Michael Jans. We have a list. Do you think council is going to choose someone who is a strong advocate for police reform? Do you think we're going to get someone who's middle of the road. What do you think council is going to do with this pick? Yes, I mean, I would say look at the existing commissioners that have been admittedly appointed by previous councils. And you have some folks in there who I would have thought would have been more vocal about police reform. I'm thinking of commissioners Irfan Chaudhry and Eric Ampman, who's the vice chair of the commission, for instance. This is me projecting what I would like to see them do onto them. They're obviously quite capable of making their own decisions about how this goes. But so I don't know that you can look at a person aside from Tom Engel (laughs) and have any idea about what they're going to do once they actually get on the commission, because that's a whole other thing, right? The sort of idea of talking about police reform when you're not on the commission and then when you're there, the role is different and the context is different. And what you can say is also different. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. Having said all that, I mean, I would guess that this, you know, is going to have to be a middle of the road person and that the vote at council would fall pretty similarly to the way the vote goes on police funding. No, I mean, we're not going to end up, I don't think, with, you know, somebody like Tom Engel getting uh, voted in on a 12 nothing, 13 nothing vote. That's not going to happen. Well, we'll certainly be sad to miss your helicopter criticism on the police commission. Was there anything else that came up this week regarding the police? There was one other thing that caught my eye, and this was a motion from Councillor Sarah Hamilton. Her motion was that administration, the city administration, offer support to the police commission as it develops solutions to assist EPS members in returning to work due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was approved, carried 13 to nothing, so unanimous. And I just thought it was kind of strange that this was called out specifically. Councillor Hamilton, of course, is one of the two council representatives on the police commission. But why don't we have a motion directing administration to support, I don't know, the public library or any of the other agencies or partners of the city that are also dealing with return to work? I mean, why is the police special? I guess we know why. But I read this motion a little bit differently than you do. And I see it sort of as the commission working as intended and council representatives on the commission working as intended. Because you're right. If this was just made out of the blue, I'd have exactly the same reaction as you. But Councillor Sarah Hamilton is a police commissioner. Mm-hmm. And we know from our discussion with Councillor Ann Stevenson that the bulk of the work of the police commission is happening in private, is happening yes. outside of public vision. So clearly Sarah Hamilton saw a deficiency in her work at the police commission and said, I as a city councilor have an opportunity to make this easier and perhaps make this easier in a way that reduces the police's need for a new budgetary ask, which is going to be a win-win in the upcoming budget discussion. Both of our reads could be correct on here. I'm hoping mine's right and that this is 
exactly how it's supposed to work. Now, would I like it to work more in public? Sure. But I'm optimistic that this is a good news story, actually. I hope you're right. You know who else is right? City manager Andre Corbald, who said the city should not sanction homeless encampments, and who also said that the city should sanction homeless encampments, depending on the week you ask him. This week, we got an update about the city's strategy to sanction encampments, and the update was decidedly directly the opposite of the previous update we got. Yeah, this is so interesting. In April of this year, we learned quite a bit about encampments. It came up for discussion quite a bit. Obviously, we know that the number of people experiencing houselessness in Edmonton grew from less than 2,000 to more than 3,000 during the pandemic. Calls to 311 about encampments increased from less than 800 in 2016 to more than 6,200 last year. So lots of people talking about encampments. And then, of course, in May of this year, City Council approved some money to respond to encampments. Last year, they spent about $2.7 million on dealing with encampments. And this year, they approved, on top of that, an additional 860000 to address encampments, clean up efforts to provide evening and weekend support, etc. And Councillor Stevenson, who also brought that motion forward for the funding, acknowledged at the time that it was inadequate in terms of meeting the needs of folks who are living in encampments right now, which is what brings us to her new motion, which is to potentially have the city sanction these encampments. So they're not talking about setting up a large scale encampment within the city or anything like that, but allowing little ones to exist almost as bridge shelter until more permanent housing is available. And her argument here is that the current response really just leads to this cycle where encampments start up, the city goes and moves them or takes them down, and then they come back. And she says often that happens, you know, at a very short time scale, maybe even within hours. So this idea, this idea of sanctioning them is not to allow them to be permanent, not to allow them to grow exceptionally large, but to help mitigate this whack-a-mole uh, system that we currently treat encampments with. Can that even work? I'm thinking back to earlier on in the pandemic, Camp Pekawewin, which was the camp that was set up by the baseball diamond over in Rossdale, which was eventually decommissioned when the conference center opened up as a COVID shelter. I recall a lot of people saying, we don't want to move to the shelter from this encampment. We're setting up this encampment in a way that protects the community in a way that shelters cannot. The encampment grew and without sort of demolishing the whole thing, it was very hard to say, you know, we're going to destroy this annex of the encampment just to shrink it down to size. I don't know that something as amorphous and something as organic as a collection of people camping can be managed in the way that you sort of described. And indeed, neither did the city of Edmonton. So in April, when they brought this report to council talking about this idea of sanctioned encampments, they reported that they had done a jurisdictional review. They had looked at other cities that had tried sanctioned encampments, and they found that in almost every case, they created larger problems with safety and cleanliness, sanitation, that sort of thing. And that they don't actually prevent people from camping elsewhere, nor do they actually really do that much to help provide services to vulnerable people. So administration previously said, this is a bad idea. We should not sanction encampments, which is why the uh, the funding motion came forward and was, was swiftly approved to provide more funding to allow the city and their, its partners to deal with these encampments when they get set up. So it's a bit strange that they did a total 180 on this. 
this week. What's the deal with the turn on the dime? I'm saying this a little bit rhetorically because I know that the answer is two murders in Chinatown, right? Indeed. Yeah. So city manager Andre Corbold, as you said off the top, spoke obviously (laughs) about this with council. And he said that their previous thinking was about encampments on a larger scale. So he's trying to explain that these smaller encampments weren't exactly in line with, uh, you know, what they had been thinking about before when they brought that uh, report forward. Though he did say this, quote, with some of the events in Chinatown, I think that sort of got us thinking again about how we could do this in a different way, end quote. Now, try. I know there's some tenuous connection between encampments and the horrible tragedy that happened in Chinatown, but it's really not a direct line that I'm seeing. This seems like a odd bit of political maneuvering by the city manager. And it, to me, really seems to undermine his credibility with council. We've talked about this in the past, where in the setup of city council, asking questions of administration and then making a decision, administration has to act as the expert witnesses. Administration has to offer expert advice to guide council's decisions. For that to happen, administration can't be making political decisions. They can't be moving their own agenda through council. Of course, we know that they do, but this highlights exactly that problem. How is council supposed to treat administration's advice as expertise when they had not considered Chinatown, an area which has been, by their own admission, demanding safety for going on decades now. How was that not considered in the context of encampments, in the context of houselessness, and in the context of making services safer for Edmontonians? Or even just the difference between large and small encampments. I don't recall. I'd have to go and watch the meeting back, but I don't seem to recall administration making a big deal that their advice about encampments was only related to large ones. Clearly, there's lots of experience in dealing with smaller encampments as well. Their advice in April seemed to be across the board. Councilor Aaron Rutherford picked up on this, as anybody who's paying attention would have, and said what has changed here is the political context. And she was you know, critical of the timeline uh, and the lack of consultation here that the, um, the city displayed. She said, quote, I'm curious about how our thoughts have evolved, but it's on a thin rope for me, end quote. So what was the result of this? Administration brought back this recommendation, but did council completely reverse their earlier decision? So now the motion that uh, was approved 11 to 2 from Councilor Stevenson is to direct administration to bring back another report on small-scale sanctioned encampments. So they are going to go away and figure out how they could, of course, pilot uh, something like this, where we do allow these small-scale encampments and make it part of the city's you know, toolkit for dealing with houselessness. Of course, we know the most important tool in the toolkit for dealing with houselessness is, go figure, housing. And that's why affordable housing has been such a critical component of the city's ongoing success on this front. And that made it all the more concerning this week when we heard that the city could be at risk at losing many of the 14,837 social and affordable housing units that have been built in the last several decades. Yeah, this was not in the news release. As you can imagine, the city really wanted this to be a good news story, and for a lot of reasons it is. So we have this uh, affordable housing investment strategy that was approved in 2018. It had a target of 2,500 new or renovated affordable housing units by the end of this year, and that includes 600 supportive. And the city is on track 
to surpass that. It already has 644 supportive housing units, 2,400 affordable with another four to 500 expected by the end of the year. So they're easily going to surpass the targets of that four-year plan. On top of that, they said they were able to renovate another 16, all 15 to 1,600 units of social housing. So it's been a good four years in terms of making progress on this problem. But if you look at the backgrounder for this, there's some information about the housing needs assessment. So the city is currently doing this housing needs assessment. It'll be the first time they've done it. In fact, it'll be the first time an Alberta municipality has developed an assessment like this. It's expected to come out later this year, but it does point out that without continued investment and renewal of operator agreements, we're at risk of losing, as you said, those fourteen to 15,000 social and affordable housing units we already had, many of which were built in the 1960s and the 1980s. So we're talking about building lots of new affordable housing plans for the next four years is similar to the last four, somewhere between 2,400, 3,500 units. But it's kind of, you know, one step forward, two steps back, if we end up losing tens of thousands of affordable housing units that were built a long time ago because we haven't continued to invest in them. And of course, we can play past the buck with this. The buck should eventually land with the provincial government, but they do not tend to pick up that buck. Does the city have any proposed solutions for how they're going to tackle this problem? Because like you said, if we have this ambitious target of building and refurbishing two or 3,000 units of affordable housing, and we're celebrating that, but on the back burner, we're at risk of losing fourteen or 15,000. That's a pretty jarring disconnect. Indeed. Yeah, there's no detail in what we've gotten so far, received so far about how uh, they plan to address that. There is, as I mentioned, this plan to build new units, refurbish additional units. Some of those, I imagine, would would end up in those numbers over the next four years. And that could range from $160 million to $246 million, roughly, uh, of city investment. And that city investment, of course, has been leveraged to access you know, additional funding from other orders of government and, um, and and also with partners. So, for example, in the last four years, the city said that they spent $115 million and got $527 million of investment. So their plan for the next four years to try to address this problem would be similar. Put up some money, spend it on both building new as well as refurbishing existing units, and hopefully leverage that into additional funding from other orders of government. I don't see how it's going to be enough to deal with all 14,000. We'll have to wait and see in the fall when this assessment finally comes out, the full assessment comes out, to see just what state all of those units are in and what you know the, the real actual immediate problem is versus the sort of medium long-term problem. One of the ways to address this is to raise more funding. And Councillor Michael Jans this week had a motion to pursue a mansion tax as a way of addressing this funding gap. On its face, it was a progressive taxation motion to tax the top 1% to 3% of property values at a bit of a higher rate in the same way that we have a progressive taxation system for income tax and make the McMansion owners just pay a little bit more as a way of raising additional funds for crime reduction, for social supports, and the like that we're looking to fund. Mac, this didn't pass. Uh, We do not have a mansion tax, but we did get something this week. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably as good as an outcome as uh, Councillor Jans could have been expecting. So it was 11 to 2 to get a report back that discusses 
how the property tax system might be changed to create a more progressive taxation system. And that'll come back sometime in September, toward the end of September, just in time for the four-year budget discussions to kick off. It was Councilors Principe and Jennifer Rice, Karen Principe and Jennifer Rice, who opposed the motion here. Jansa's argument is essentially those who can pay a little bit more should pay a little bit more. Many of his council colleagues agreed with him, but a couple didn't. And as you said, we didn't get this mansion tax. All we're going to do at this point is get the information, which you said in last week's episode is an important step. I do want to highlight a little bit why I actually think this is a pretty good idea. I know we've talked about in the past taxation and Councillor Mike Nickel loved to talk about businesses moving to the uh, counties, Spruce Grove, Leduc, around where there's a lower tax scheme for their businesses. And, you know, Edmonton needs to have a more competitive tax rate for businesses. This is not quite the same thing because the nature of property tax is, I don't want to say we've got a hostage type situation, but we sort of do. You know, if there's a mansion that costs $13 million and you raise its tax rate such that there's more taxes being levied on that particular property and the owner throws his hands up in the air and says, I'm moving to Phoenix, Arizona. I'm done with these taxes. He's got to sell his house and then someone has to buy it. And then that other person has to pay that higher tax rate. And if this higher tax rate has lowered the value of the property from 13 million to $11 million, and that millionaire unfortunately misses out on that real estate capitalization, I'm very sad for him. Uh, I hope he'll cry tears into his pool in Arizona. (laughs) Property tax, you've kind of got people locked in and they kind of just have to pay. And if they leave, someone else will pay. What do you think about the idea that we already have a progressive system for taxation, right? I mean, if your house is worth 400,000 and mine is 800,000, you're paying half as much as I pay already, right? For sure. But the same argument could be made for Alberta's flat tax on income tax of 10%. You know, if you make double my salary, then you're going to be paying more in taxes, even at 10% than I'm paying on at 10%. And yet we still have income tax brackets, which I think shows that the base idea, if you have a higher capacity to pay, you can be taxed at a higher rate because the effect of a higher taxation rate is a lot more muted on someone in a higher tax bracket. This idea of progressive taxation has been explored all across the world and is generally a good idea. I don't know if it's necessarily the best idea for property taxes. I imagine we'll find out in the report. I know we both have talked about in the past that I personally would love to see a land tax instead rather than charging you on the assessed value of your property. Mm -hmm. charge based on the assessed value of the land, which has the benefit of being a sort of density incentivizer. You know, if you're getting charged $300,000 per plot of land, if you put eight units on that plot, then each unit pays substantially less in property taxes versus in the current system where it's assessed based on the value of the units, which may be just as high as a single family home on its own lot. So, you know, there's pros and cons to other taxation systems. One thing I remember is that our episodes with Kate Watt and Anton Sabo about taxes have 
always been some of my favorite episodes to record. So I think getting another report back on taxes and maybe having the opportunity to talk to them again, that prospect excites me. So I'm excited to see what this report comes with. Yeah, the city has, of course, and council have been already looking into this, different subclasses potentially for derelict properties or for maybe basing tax on density, as you suggest. So, you know, the bottom line here, and this is what Anton Sabo said actually about this uh, this motion, is that we're just looking for ways to get around this ability to pay beyond the baseline market value assessment approach. So we'll get this report back with maybe what these other variety of options are, pros and cons. And as you say, we'll get them back on the show to help us understand it. I want to close with the final thing that we unfortunately will never understand. And that is a very simple question, a question that can be asked in all capitals if you want. When will the Valley Line Southeast LRT open? And the answer we got this week is a very clear response from TransEd, which is no answer. <laughs> if you ask it in all caps, by the way, maybe say to the mayor, you get a response back in all caps, which I did a couple of weeks ago when the city uh, had a news release and a groundbreaking ceremony for the Valley Line West. And my sim- question was simply in all caps, when is the Valley Line Southeast LRT opening? And as you say, we have no idea. TransEd, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday this morning, did do an update today talking about the interaction between trains and traffic. And they said they're still confident that the track will open, the line will open this summer. They said, we, we will give you a firm date when we get close. I feel like we're close to summer, Troy. In fact, we're on June 22nd. <laughs> Legally, it's summer. <laughs> they said, we're not far from being able to do that. They said the city and the partners will be the first to know. And then very shortly after that, the media, stakeholders, community leagues, a lot of words to say nothing. Transit does go on to say, okay, well, we need to do full testing of the 47 intersections. That's going to take about a couple of weeks. And then we go into full system testings and they give sort of timelines for every step that they need to complete. And yet didn't do like the sum operation to add all those timelines together. You would think that would be some simple math to get done, right? They did say it's fully integrated. They said there's trains on there 24 hours a day. I got to say, I've seen maybe one train downtown in the last little while, but there's been no construction activity, right? The construction is done. They've been testing this for a long time now. (laughs) I don't understand how they don't have a handle, as you say, on how much testing is left and what the schedule for that looks like. Or maybe, as you said, they do, and they're just gun shy about giving us a date. Because originally, let's remind listeners, it was going to be December 2020. Then it was delayed to the end of 2021. And then before we got there, it was delayed to the first quarter of 2022. And then they just said summer 2022 with no exact opening date. And that's where we remain. People may be fearing there was a previous train line, the Metro Line LRT, which had signaling issues. And then they see TransEd releases saying, oh, we're testing the signaling system of the line. This is an entirely different system. The lessons and, in fact, the pains of the Metro Line LRT, they don't apply to this line. Right, Mac? I mean, they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's a different signaling system and everything. I mean, I guess the, the signaling system that is on this line is not fully operational, right? So when the trains have been doing testing, when they have been going through intersections, there's been people, they call them flag people, with these intersections, helping to escort the trains through, making sure traffic is stopped while they're testing. So 
we're getting there. They're going to have the signaling system up and running. But yeah, it doesn't seem like the, the challenges that plagued Metroline should apply in this case. And so if there's a worry that we don't want to repeat the mistakes of Metroline, I don't see how that applies exactly to this one. And, you know, I wanted to point out something that and when I was thinking about today, this event, this is not the first event. They've had a series of events to give these little small updates on the Valley Line, right? To say that it's 98% complete or this thing has happened or, or what have you. Back in 2009, when we built the extension down to South Campus, so not even the full Capital Line, but down to South Campus, I got to attend the first public train that got there. So the media got to get on this train you know, got to ride it, got to see how it was going to work. First time anybody was allowed on there. The next day, regular transit service began. This is how we used to do it, Troy, in 2009. We'd tell people it was ready, and then we'd open it the next day. (laughs) Now we tell people months and months and months in advance that it's 98% done, and we just keep them guessing. Trains in your day ran to the station uphill both ways. They don't do it like they used to, do they, Mac? They don't. They sure don't. Get off my lawn. All right, Troy, clearly we are not being kind, I suppose, to the transit folks and to the city. And I think that's justified. We've been expecting, waiting for this train line to open for coming up on two years now. Well, if you include the construction decades, but sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when it, from when it was expected to be open. But I will say, I hope that this testing is fruitful and that they, I'm sure they're doing their best to make sure that it is safe. And that's very important. We would like to see the train open, though, Transat, if you're listening as soon as possible, please. I will say I was biking past the uh, Mutart station, which is now open, the sort of plaza space. It's very beautiful down there. And there was a train parked there. And the sort of like butterflies in my stomach, the happy little feeling that I got when I said, oh, look, a train, you know, <laughs> that that was good. I'm, I'm excited for Edmontonians to experience that. So TransEd, give us our train tomorrow. It's the thesis statement. We're only hard on you because we want the train now. Yesterday, actually, but now it's good. We are just about out of time for this episode, but we can't end it without telling you about Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. It's offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from, and if you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.